Great to be with you again, and welcome to The Real Deal on Drugs, a podcast that aims to provide young people with the information they want to know about alcohol and other drugs. Anyone can listen, but it's important to remember that what is being talked about is done so with young people in mind. If you're looking for a whole pile of hardcore scientific jargon and detailed research findings, I'm sure there are lots of other podcasts that are out there that you can access. Whenever I can, I'll try to provide practical advice rather than just talk about the short-term and long-term effects of different substances. Just to remind those who've heard me at schools, I'll be covering some of the same material you may have already heard, but hopefully I can provide a little more detail here. And of course, if you have friends from other schools who have not heard me, you can now share this podcast and the information with them. Students who've heard me speak at their school know that I do my very best to make myself available to them and really value any feedback they give me. I couldn't do what I do without listening to what you guys have to say. That's the only way I can keep up to date with what young people are doing in this area. No book or journal article is ever going to be as useful as sitting down and having a conversation with teenagers and finding out what they get up to on a Saturday night. One of the great challenges during COVID was that my talks had to move online. That meant that I wasn't at schools talking face-to-face with students. I couldn't ask them questions and listen to what was going on in their world. Social media certainly helped me stay at least a little connected to what was happening, but it hasn't been easy. I'm sometimes asked if I ever receive negative messages from young people or hate mail. It's so easy in today's cyber world to send anonymous messages via social media. I'm sure you know better than I do that there are those who write really cruel things, shut down their device and not think or even care about the consequences. I really don't know how teens do it today. I've got to be honest and say that receiving anything even close to hate mail from young people really devastates me. I don't cope well. But I'm really lucky that I don't get much although it has happened a couple of times in relation to information I present to Year 12s about schoolies, or as they call it in WA, leavers. For some reason, that seems to be a really touchy subject. No matter how much I say that the warnings I may give about what could happen when they get to wherever they're going won't happen to everyone, their potential risks, I've still received some nasty messages to let me know that what I said didn't happen and that everything I told them was wrong. There have also been one or two occasions where a student writes to me to tell me that I've completely ruined their life. This is usually due to their parents coming to a talk I've given or read something that I've written and then they change their rules in some way. When this happens, these guys can really let me have it all guns blazing. They are usually very upset and angry because of the new rules their parents have put into place, and they decide to take it out on me, sometimes being quite aggressive and making it all very personal. One email I received years ago really stands out in my mind. I thought I'd read it out word for word. Hi, Mr. Dillon. I would just like to say that although I'm sure you do know what you're talking about and that you have seen the worst and that you have good intentions, you really have changed my life a lot. My parents have always been pretty strict and after going to your talk, you have made them paranoid. They now think that I do drugs or something and I would never do drugs. 
Yes, I've drunk alcohol before, but I never get hammered to the point of danger. They now won't let me go out to parties anymore, and they call me up almost every hour when I'm out and about. At your talks, maybe you could also consider telling parents that there are teenagers who can drink without going overboard and who are actually trustworthy. Now, this certainly wasn't really hate mail and nowhere close. In fact, all things considered, it was actually quite polite. This young person was really upset. Their parents had obviously changed their behaviour in some way and then told them that it was due to something that I'd said in my talk. If that had happened to me, I wouldn't be happy either. Let me make it clear that when I speak to parents, I always let them know how many young people make good choices and that although there are some who drink to excess and use other drugs, most try their best to do the right thing. When I get any message from a young person, I do my very best to get back to them, no matter how rude they may have been. Firstly, I make it clear to them that being rude isn't going to get them anywhere, and then I try to respond to their concerns the best I can. I'm always amazed at how many times these people get back to me and often apologise for what they first sent through. I think many of them are just staggered that I took the time to respond. As I said, I couldn't do what I do without feedback from young people. This is an area that's constantly changing. I work in this field every day and I can't keep up with everything that's happening. Talking to you, answering your questions and listening to what you have to say about what's happening in your world is so important. Drink spiking is, without a doubt, the most controversial and emotive issue that I have had to deal with over the years. Almost everyone has an opinion on the issue, with most people basing this on a personal experience of some kind. They may have been spiked themselves, or they know someone who has, or they've heard of someone that it's happened to. The real problem here is that although almost everyone seems to know someone who's been spiked, this crime is rarely reported, and as a result, we don't really know as much about it as we should. Before I talk about what we do know, the most important thing to remember is that if someone believes they've been a victim of this crime, regardless of the available evidence, that person has been through a traumatic experience. As a result, they must be treated with respect and dignity. To brush them off or dismiss their claims or even suggest that there must be another explanation for what happened to them is totally inappropriate. I also need to warn people that I'm going to be talking about sexual assault during this episode, and that can be triggering for some people. Drink spiking refers to drugs or alcohol being added to any kind of drink, whether it be alcoholic or non-alcoholic, without the consent of the person consuming it. There are believed to be two main reasons why this crime is committed. Firstly, drink spiking is carried out for the purposes of drugging a person to enable someone to commit another crime, such as sexual assault or robbery. Based on what we currently know, however, the second reason is the most likely and is referred to as prank spiking or pranking. This is when someone reports having their drink spiked but there appears to be no apparent reason why it was done. There are usually a couple of key commonalities linked to drink spiking cases, with the first being something along the lines of, the night was a blank. Those who report being spiked often have very little recollection of what happened, 
and often have to rely on the people they were with to let them know what actually went down. The other common thing that we hear is that what they felt was unlike anything they'd ever experienced before, and as such, couldn't be explained away by alcohol or even any other drug that they may have tried in the past. For the night to become a blank, it would appear that the drugs used in drink spiking would need to be amnesic in effect. That leads to one of the greatest problems when it comes to collecting good information about this crime. People are often confused about exactly what happened, and as a result, rarely report the incident, fearing that they won't be believed. If and when they finally do decide to make a report, it is often too late to collect vital information, particularly when it comes to testing to detect the presence of drugs that could have possibly been used. There have been many studies looking at drink spiking, and based on the research that we have, alcohol is by far the most likely drug to be used in drink spiking incidents. For many people who believe they have been spiked, this is something they find extremely hard to believe. As I've said, one of the features of this crime is that the person reports that their experience was like nothing they'd ever had before. As far as many are concerned, they know what the effect of alcohol feels like, and that's not what happened to them. I've been asked many times, how can someone be spiked with alcohol? And really, it's pretty easy. If someone offers you a drink, instead of giving you a glass with, say, one shot of vodka, they put in two, three, or even more. When a mixer is added, the drink may seem stronger than normal, but, but that's about it. There's no unusual additional taste, and so it's fairly easy to do and get away without being noticed. There are a number of drugs that are typically linked to drink spiking, with the one that is most often discussed being a powerful sleep medication called Rohypnol. That's actually a brand name, with a drug itself called Flunitrazepam. These pills or tablets are often referred to as roofies, and they received a lot of negative attention in the 1990s, particularly in the US. So much so that people started talking about being roofied when discussing being spiked, particularly in relation to sexual assault. This drug would certainly have the desired effect. That is, it's amnesic. The person is likely not to remember much after taking it, and it could certainly knock someone out, particularly if they've been drinking alcohol. The truth is, however, that it's rarely identified in tests conducted on those who believe they've been spiked. Other sleeping pills or anti-anxiety medications such as Valium and Xanax that are likely to have a similar effect are also tested for and rarely found. Increasingly, a drug that is often suspected to be used in this crime is one called GHB, gamma-hydroxybutyrate. Now, this is a drug that comes in liquid form that is extremely difficult to identify in testing, even after a very short time. The fact that it is also amnesic in effect adds to the possibility that this could be a drug used by unscrupulous people to commit this crime. The one major issue with GHB being used in drink spiking, however, is that it usually has a very obvious taste and smell that cannot be disguised easily. It's highly unlikely that anybody who had this put into their drink would not notice. At the very least, it would be salty and at worst have a very metallic and highly unpleasant taste. One of the most important messages that we can give around drink spiking is that if you believe your drink has been tampered with in any way, 
that is, there's an unusual taste or it's gritty or you think you can see something in it that shouldn't be there, don't drink it and dispose of it immediately. Remember, if you just leave it around, there's a chance someone else may drink it. If you've tasted something that didn't seem quite right, let someone you're with know about your concerns as quickly as you can. They can then stay close and monitor you. If there was something in the drink, you will have time to get help. Please don't believe what you see in the movies. It would be almost impossible for a drug to have any major effect immediately after taking a drink. That's just not how drugs work. People don't take a sip of a drink and then immediately fall to the floor unconscious. Drugs take some time to take effect. Tell someone about your concerns as quickly as possible. You do have the time. The other important thing that most people don't understand is that if someone has been spiked and gets tested, it's not that easy to find out what drug was used in the crime. Unfortunately, we live in a world where police shows on TV make it seem like you can put a liquid into one end of a machine and voila, 10 seconds later, this amazing computer graphic pops up on a screen on the other end, providing all the information about its contents. It would be great if it was that easy, but it's not. First off, testing is an incredibly expensive process. And most importantly, in most cases, you've got to know what you're looking for before you test. Once again, it's not like the movies. So what can you do to protect yourself and your friends in this area? Firstly, and most importantly, drink spiking is a crime. If you are with someone who thinks it would be a bit of fun to slip some more alcohol into a drink than a person was expecting, call them out on it. It's not funny and it's totally unacceptable. As I've said, when there's not another crime such as sexual assault or robbery linked to the spiking, it's often referred to as pranking. But let's make something really clear. Putting another drug into someone else's drink is not a joke. It's extremely dangerous and deaths have occurred as a result of someone putting a drug into someone else's drink without their knowledge. I'm sure most of you have heard of the very simple things you can do to protect yourself from this crime. And they include such things as always get your own drink. If someone else is making it, watch it being poured. Never, ever leave it unattended. Don't drink or taste anybody else's drink. Never accept drinks from anyone else. And if you think your drink tastes strange in any way, pour it out. Unfortunately, one of the most important things we've learned from the research about this topic is rarely talked about and is particularly relevant to young people who aren't yet old enough to go to nightclubs and bars. There is a belief that drink spiking is most likely to occur at these type of venues when people are surrounded by strangers. These places are often crowded and noisy and the lighting is not always the best. Most of the stories you see in the media reinforce this belief, particularly in relation to pranking incidents. Research tells a different story, however, with most of the crimes that are actually prosecuted not taking place in those kind of venues. Instead, they are more likely to involve a person being spiked in the home, either theirs or the perpetrators, and the crime is not committed by a stranger, but rather someone they know. 
Over the years, I've received a number of emails from young people who shared their story with me because they wanted others to be warned that it's not necessarily a stranger who commits this crime. In fact, it can be someone you felt you knew and trusted or even cared for, like a partner. I'm going to edit this next email down considerably as the details are quite disturbing and could be triggering for some. But the message this young woman wanted me to share is so important. She wrote, I'd been going out with my boyfriend Dan for about three months and I thought things were really going well. My mum and dad liked him, as did all my friends. We were invited to a party where we knew there were going to be no parents at the house and we're all really looking forward to going. When we got there, things were pretty wild already. There were lots of people, some quite a bit older than us, and many of them were pretty drunk. We'd had a couple of drinks before we got there, and I really didn't want any more. For some reason, Dan wanted me to have one more, and after a bit of coaxing, I started drinking from the bottle he had given me. I immediately knew it wasn't right. It had a nasty taste, and when I told him about it, he said I was being stupid. He was drinking the same thing, and nothing was wrong with his. I should have stopped drinking then, but I trusted him. Things are pretty blurry from then on, and I can only go by what my friends told me the next day. Apparently, I started to slur my words and have difficulty walking and even standing. Dan told my friends that he and I had sculled a couple of drinks, which I know I hadn't, and that I was pretty drunk. He was going to take me to one of the bedrooms and look after me until I sobered up. A couple of hours later, I came to and found myself lying on a bed. Dan was in the corner of a room with a couple of his mates, and they were talking about what had just happened. They had dared him to put GHB in my drink, and while I was unconscious, he had sexually assaulted me. This was her boyfriend, someone she knew well and trusted completely. It wasn't a stranger that committed this crime, and it didn't happen in a nightclub. It was at a party at someone's home. Drink spiking does happen. We always come back to the same line. Look after yourself and look after your friends. If someone believes their drink may have been spiked, it is important that you believe them. Stay with them at all times and seek medical assistance if you believe it is needed. Don't leave them to sleep it off or get home on their own. Well, that's another episode of this second series ended. As always, I'd love to get your feedback on what you've heard and whether you found it helpful. If you did and you think someone you know may be interested in listening, make sure you share the podcast with them. If you have a question on anything to do with this area, send it to me by email and I'll do my very best to get to it on a future episode of The Real Deal on Drugs. Thanks for listening and stay safe.